Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Are you getting enough CBD each day? Hemp Meds carries the most trusted CBD oil brands like Real Scientific Hemp Oil and Dixie Botanicals to make it easy to add cannabinoids like CBD to your diet. We hold all our hemp oil products to our rigorous triple lab tested standard to ensure that you and your family receive only the highest quality and most reliable CBD products. Hemp Meds is your trusted source for CBD. Visit hempmeds.com to get our premium CBD oil today. Use discount code CBD20 to get 20% off your first order. And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, and happy to be here today. I often hear stories about cancer patients who have turned to medical marijuana as a last resort to find comfort during end-stage cancer, only to find that it not only relieved their symptoms from chemotherapy, it actually wound up prolonging their lives. I won't tell you that medical marijuana cures cancer, but I think I can safely say there's mounting evidence that it has been effective treating end-stage cancer patients that have survived long enough to become living proof and tell their story. The use of medical marijuana to curb the pain, nausea, and other side effects of chemotherapy patients is widely accepted. But cannabis as a treatment for cancer itself has yet to be sanctioned by the FDA and medical community at large. That seems strange considering that more than a decade ago, the National Institute of Health and the National Cancer Institute publicly declared that cannabis has been shown to kill cancer cells in the laboratory. A number of early foreign studies have also found that phytocannabinoids endocannabinoids and even synthetic cannabinoids lead to inhibition of growth of many tumor types. More recently, studies in Israel, Eastern Europe, Asia, and South America have narrowed the results significantly. Despite the mounting evidence that cannabis is a viable therapy, we're a long way from FDA approval. While it would seem that federal marijuana law reform is inevitable, it could be years before the DEA deschedules marijuana or at least reschedules it to allow for clinical research, pharmaceutical development, and medical prescriptions. So, for now, oncologists are prohibited from prescribing it as a treatment for their oncology patients, and unfortunately, that leaves cancer patients to fend for themselves if they want to try it. Fortunately, there's a growing network of medical practitioners, cultivators, and formulators who are independently working with cancer patients to help them find treatment options that provide relief. They're also studying and documenting patient outcomes while they await approval for more clinical research. That's the topic of today's show and something our guest knows a lot about. Before I introduce her, Dr. Brian Donner has our Medical Marijuana Minute. What do you have for us today, Dr. Donner? Thank you, Snowden. Cancer and symptoms are universally accepted as a qualifying condition for patients seeking medical marijuana certification in states where it is legal. 
There's good reason for that. Not only does cannabis relieve the pain and nausea that often comes with chemotherapy, it also helps to stimulate the appetite, which is essential for patients to regain strength and support their healing process. But cannabis has other benefits for cancer patients that are less widely known. For example, certain cannabinoids can help to strengthen the immune system and protect healthy cells from the damaging effects of chemotherapy and radiation. Some cancer survivors believe that medical marijuana also helped them beat the odds by reducing the size of their tumors and, in some cases, eradicating them. While the FDA has yet to sanction clinical studies that definitively prove that cannabis has remission-type effects on cancer in humans, foreign studies and laboratory research conducted here in the U.S. show very promising results. More than a decade ago, the National Institutes of Health published a study by the National Cancer Institute that showed cannabinoids to be effective in killing cancer cells in the laboratory. More recently, human clinical studies in Israel, Eastern Europe, Asia, and South America suggest that phytocannabinoids and even some synthetic cannabinoids inhibit the growth of many tumor-type cells. A study conducted in Spain concluded that cannabidiolic acid, or CBDA, inhibits aggression in breast cancer cells. Just last year, a study at Northwestern University showed that a combination of CBD and THC kept cervical cancer cells from spreading. The same study found that CBD actually induced cell death in cervical cancer cell lines. When you combine the positive outcomes of these studies with the anecdotal evidence of cancer patients who exceeded their life expectancy by incorporating cannabis into their treatments, there's no question that more clinical research beyond the laboratory setting is warranted. Indeed, it will be necessary before oncologists and others in the medical community can be convinced that cannabis is a viable option for treating cancer. I'm Dr. Brian Donner for the Cannabis Reporter. I'll be back again next week with another Medical Marijuana Minute. Back to you, Snowden. Thank you so much, Dr. Donner. So let's get started. I am excited to introduce our guest. Mara Gordon is the founder of Aunt Zelda's, a California-based cultivator and dispensary organization. With years of research and working with patients, she has developed expertise in the correct use of medical cannabis matched to disease-specific products. So welcome. Thank you so much, Mara, for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Snowden. You know, um, I was fascinated. I watched online a number of videos. You have been speaking all over the country and basically introducing people to to the research that you've done with um, direct patient contact and with the formulas and that sort of thing. Give me sort of a bird's eye view of what it is that you do and how you started doing this. Okay. Um, when I first came to cannabis, the uh, I had the same frustration that so many people do. And that is, you know, how do you dose? How do you know what to take? All of that. So uh, I put together a very uh, bright, talented group of people, and we set out as our goal to solve the dosing conundrum uh, so that people are able to know where the question we're looking to solve is, is there in fact a way to accurately and consistently dose cannabinoids and terpenes over time across diseases? And so everything that we have done since then has been uh, geared around answering that question, uh, whether it's our, our specific understanding of the formulas that we're creating, the clinical research and uh, preclinical research both that we're doing, uh, as well as the uh, extensive data collection and, um, uh, and understanding to build software to support this for the community. 
So are, on your staff or the people that you've put together in the team, are a lot of them uh, from the medical community? Uh, we have a combination. We have two uh, doctors that uh, have been working with us, um, and we have three nurses. We also have a molecular biologist. We have chemist, and then we have um, also quite a few outside uh, uh, um, professionals that we access, that we partner with to do some of our research. Um, so yeah, we have quite a bit of people who understand this as a science and not just as a quaint um, um, solution that people are doing on their own. This is, there's nothing, there's nothing quaint about the way that we're approaching this. Right. And, and you mentioned um, clinical research. Um, what's down the pike right now? So um, um, besides having Aunt Zelda's, uh, we also started Calispring Wellness, which is our separate organization in California for the doctors and nurses because they're not allowed to work for a company specifically that touches the plant. Um, so that's a separate organization for them to work to. They maintain uh, a separate thing. In addition, there's a company called Zelda Therapeutics that um, I am one of the founders of and a director of, and its purpose is to fund clinical and preclinical research. Uh, we have been funding um, some of the research done out of Complutense University in Spain um, on uh, HER2 positive breast tumors, and we're, in fact, I, I presented on that at CanMed at Harvard Medical School last week on our results of our preclinical work in vitro and in vivo. In addition, we're funding uh, some pancreatic studies, cancer studies in Australia, um, and some GBM studies through the Telethon Kid Institute in, um, in Spain. Wow. Uh, excuse me, in Australia as well. Mm -hmm. Good. So it's basically international. And any, any universities or any, anyone partaking here in the States? Well, the only thing that we're doing is we're going to be starting a sleep study in San Francisco. Uh, we're just waiting on the IRB, which is the, the review board that, that, um, for uh, the ethics committee, basically, that allows, you know, anytime you're going to work with, with patients, you have to have uh, ethics review. And so we're just waiting for that right now. There shouldn't be any problem because it's going to be a pretty uh, standard informal study. Um, but with the, with the laws the way they are here right now, in order to do any uh, quote-unquote bona fide study that would be accepted, for example, like by the FDA, we would have to use uh, medicine that comes out of Mississippi, which is quite inferior to the reality of what is actually being used. And to apply for that is uh, quite difficult. And uh, you never really know what you're going to get. Why Mississippi. University of Mississippi, that's just where they have it. I don't, I don't have enough information of like why it got started there, but that's where it is. So that anybody in the U.S. who's uh, legally doing studies would have to be sourcing their material from there. Wow. That's, yeah. And, and I, as far as I know, they don't really even have a decent medical marijuana program in Mississippi. Oh, no. This has nothing to do with you know, whether they do or don't. This is simply where... Uh, uh, NIDA has, has put <laughs> where it's being grown. And in order to get approval, you have to jump through five, I think it's either three or five. The last time I heard different agencies, 
you know, DEA, NIDA, FDA, et cetera, to be able to even get permission to do this. And then just as an as, as a side, the the they used the stems and the leaves and the branches and the flowers, everything. So they put they just grind it all up in a big giant wood chipper. So it's not exactly the kind of medicines that any of us would actually be using to to create uh, formulations. And uh, they're very, very high in CBN, which is what happens when THC degrades over time. So it's very old on top of it. Oh, wow. So, right. So, but the, the studies in Spain and Australia, they have um, pretty sophisticated growing laws. And, and um, I mean, the research is really sanctioned by the governments there, correct? Uh, yes and no. In Spain, we're doing it through the university. And um, they're, they're, they use uh, primarily uh, pure compounds that they source from, uh, I believe it's Germany. Um, however, in this last study that uh, was done, the, the preclinical, it was comparing these pure compounds to one of our, our full extracts, uh, one of our medicines. And I have absolutely no idea how it got from California to Spain. So um, they were able to actually use real medicine with real, you know, associated lab results and have everything retested and all, which was fantastic. Also, um, in some, a lot of the times, these countries and organizations that want to do research end up having to source from places that are allowed to export, like Canada, for example, is allowed to export. Right. We're also doing quite a bit down in Chile. And Chile is going to allow exportation. So we're, we're pushing forward to go into areas where we can actually, you know, create GMP quality products and then be able to export from there. Because it's ridiculous that we can't do it here. The U.S. is missing an enormous market. But, you know, that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> that's a whole nother, oh, that's a whole, whole nother you know, <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I think um, my listeners are probably getting sick of hearing me complain about that because it really is such a shame. I mean, even, even with the hemp market, the farmers are missing out on huge economic upside. And, um, you know, and we, we really could, with the growing number of people who are actually involved in the cannabis movement, there's a huge opportunity for us to take the lead here in the United States as far as developing the technology and, and um, developing the science around cannabis and the endocannabinoid system. And we're just, you know, doctors' hands are tied, scientists' hands are tied. It just, it's such a shame to me. Absolutely. But, yeah. Absolutely. So it, it's a shame. It's a shame also because in other parts of the world, they're seeing the financial opportunities and they're jumping on it. Yeah. And yeah. we're, you know, and it's, it's early days, but it's not going to be early days for long. Right. right. Well, you know, and, and, and not to mention the, the health and human wellness factor, you know, I mean, people who have access seem to be um, faring a lot better than, you know, those who are, who are using just strictly the pharmaceutical, um, protocols for a lot of things that cannabis has proven to be um, effective in treating, like pain, mm -hmm. especially. But, right. So walk me through. Walk me through how um, how you how you have found what formulation works. Let's say I'm a cancer patient and I come to you for advice because my oncologist is unable to 
um, guide me in the right direction. What would you tell me as I walk in the door? Well, the first thing that I would have to know is what type of cancer you have. There are over 200 types of cancers, and within each of those 200, there's a multiple subtypes. And then with each of them is for every cancer patient, you have your own cell lines associated with it. So it's far more complex than just cancer, which is one of my pet peeves when I hear people say, oh, you know, one size fits all, you know, a gram a day, go kill your cancer, go quote unquote, cure your cancer, which I don't believe there's any such thing of. So first thing I would want to know is what type of cancer you have. Then I would look at Uh, what treatments you've gone through so far, what your existing pharmaceuticals and supplements, diet, all those sorts of things. We're collecting about 300 data points on each patient as they come in so that we have a lot of of data to help us to guide what are going to be the most important factors that are involved. Um, And then we would, you know, we also be looking at what your your previous and current cannabis experience and use has been and what that was like. Um, We'd also, of course, look at your age, and we would look at your objective. Um, And the objective is probably one of the most uh, important questions that we ask, because if, you know, fortunately, over the years, I've seen where patients are coming to us earlier and earlier. You know, it used to be we got them as a Hail Mary pass after the, you know, the oncologist had given up everything else, and they were, you know, on their way out, and they just you know, it's like a last ditch effort. Now people are getting diagnosis, excuse me, getting diagnosed and we're often their first phone call after they call their family members. So we have, you know, which is very, very promising. So we would have to know what stage, but the reason for the objective is if somebody comes to us, uh, let's say, you know, you came to us and you said, you know, this was your situation. And I immediately, or my staff's going to start thinking in terms of, you know, while we could give her this dose of this cannabinoid and some of this and some of that to start killing the cancer. And you're, and let's say your attitude is, you know what? I'm tired. I just want to be able to sleep better and get rid of the aches and pains. I'm ready to go. So we have to then respect the wishes of the patient on what their objective is with the cannabis therapy. Um, having said that, if you came as a healthy, you know, 40 something year old woman with, you know, breast, uh, cancer, let's say you had HER2 positive breast cancer, we would probably start you out somewhere around a one-to-one ratio of cannabinoids of THC to CBD. We would separate them out, which is what we do with our patients, where you take the high THC at one point in the day and the high CBD in another, and, uh, and your dose would depend specifically upon uh, your previous experience and your how you titrated. We start everybody out extremely low and then titrate you up to what we consider a therapeutic dose based upon the criteria that we've collected on other patients with the same diagnosis in the same age group. Right. And, and you've seen some amazing things. I mean, how often have you seen someone come in saying, I'm tired, I'm giving up, only to find that they're still around several months later when their doctors had given up on them? Uh, it actually happens quite frequently. Um, and then it's just a matter of like, I had, a, I had a gentleman, uh, come to us oh, a couple few years ago now that, uh, he was in the hospital. His, fa- his, his wife actually is the one that made the initial because he was too weak and, um, he wasn't eating. He was completely 
very lethargic. He was, you know, semi-comatose state. And um, all he wanted more than anything in the world was to make it for his daughter's wedding, which was three weeks away. Wow. And uh, he ended up immediately pinking up and uh, becoming more alert and uh, began eating again and was able to attend. In fact, he was able to roll his wheelchair down next to his daughter down the aisle. And several weeks later, he died. Um, I consider that a success. Yeah. Um, he never, this is a man that never would have left the hospital. Wow. I, that gave me chills to hear that. Because, you know, in just the fact that he was more comfortable and able to get himself up out of the hospital to attend his daughter's wedding, that is a huge success. Huge. So, you know, we have to measure it according to the wishes of the patient. You know, we do have quite a few that, you know, uh, most of the time what ends up happening is people initially say, oh, I'm just going to take this to feel better. And then as soon as they start feeling better, they have hope. And then they start, they want to increase so that they can uh, continue. Right. Right. And then there have been some not so successful stories as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had, I had, uh, I've had people who, because they're taking their advice from, uh, I call it Dr. Facebook and Dr. Google, (laughs) they, they think they know things from being on these crazy Facebook groups and they, you know, they get it in their heads that they have to take a certain thing a certain way. And if it's not that it won't work. I'll give you an example of a particular, it was a gentleman that came to us with prostate cancer and he had read on a, uh, a series of blogs or whatever that he had to have 90% THC oil and it had to be, it had to be 90% and he had to take a gram a day. Well, first of all, what is a gram? Is a gram a thousand milligrams of cannabinoids or is it a thousand milligrams of, excuse me, milligrams of weight? So, you know, which one is it? Okay. Right. So that's the first question. And so at the time uh, I had, I believe the, the top I had was something like 65% oil. So of, of THC. And I said to him, I said, well, first of all, with prostate cancer, I would have you on much less THC and much more CBD because of the ID1 gene. There's much more proof of that working effectively with our patients. Oh, no, no, no. It has to be the 90% THC or it won't work. Well, I didn't have any 90% THC. And I tried to explain to him that even if I had 45%, he would just take twice as much. It's just a number. But he wouldn't, and he is no longer with us. He, I don't you know where he ended up going, but I got a note from his brother that, we, that they lost him. So that was one where the ignorance was the culprit. I've also had patients where... They just simply were unable to tolerate feeling altered. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, this seems to happen more frequently with women than with men, uh, just in our experience, where they're not as comfortable uh, with any kind of alteration in uh, uh, psychoactive activity. And so they're not willing to get up to a therapeutic dose. You know, I try to explain to people that, you will acclimate to it and you will no longer feel it because if you're not able to acclimate, you're taking too much and we can back down. But I have had cases where people say, Oh, I tried it, forget it. I'm not going to do this instead of being patient and allowing it to acclimate over time. 
So those are always very sad when that's the case. I've also had uh, one woman who's a very well-known GBM patient who she's actually a 17-year survivor with something that they call the Terminator. She's a bit of a miracle. Um, However, she won't take a therapeutic dose to the point to where we can actually try to kill the cancer cells. It's more about just keeping it, um, or, or I should say reduce the actual tumor size. It's actually she just takes enough to maintain and keep any seizure activity away, where I know that if we were to increase it, we would be able to have a far better outcome for her. But, you know, she's making her choice, and it is her choice. Right. Isn't there, you know, I've, I've heard of... Um like certain CBN, I guess, uh, tinctures that you can take that will reduce the effect of the psychoactivity in THC. Um, would that work in that instance? Like people who just don't like to be altered? Right. It's, it's CBD that would, that would actually alter, I mean, that would uh, reduce because CBD is sometimes used as a rescue. Uh-huh. But it's not full on. It's not, it's going to take you away from feeling uh, very uncomfortable, it's not going to make you feel completely normal. Plus the fact that, you know, frankly, about a third of our patients uh, experience some levels of psychoactivity, which is such a strange term anyway. I mean, you drink a cup of tea, you have psychoactivity, technically. (laughs) But But CBD can make some people feel very, very sleepy, and other people feel very anxious. Because these are not pure compounds. These exist within plants that contain hundreds of other uh, compounds in there, both in combinations of cannabinoids, those that we don't even identify yet, and uh, terpenes. Right. And explain how the terpenes affect the cannabinoids as well. Well, we have a formula that we make for sleep, okay? And so when we're searching out and we find the the cultivar that we're going to use for this, we make sure that it has myrcene in it and linalool. Myrcene is something that's uh, found in um, uh, quite a few things, found in mangoes, it's found in hops. Uh, uh, linalool is found in lavender, and these are both very soothing and can be can uh, make you feel a little bit sleepy. So these terpenes will completely change the way that the THC um, acts uh, versus how it would act on its own. I mean, anyone who's ever tried Marinol, which is the pure compound of THC, uh, as it happens to be a synthetic, they'll tell you that it's a dreadful feeling. It just feels horrible, which is why there's no street value or street market for Marinol. Mm-hmm. But you take that same THC and you have it in a cultivar that's got limonene uh, or alpha-pinene in it, and it's going to be very uplifting and invigorating. So the terpenes are what really modulate how you're going to feel as a result of using the, the medicine. Yeah, and that, that really has more to do with the strain that, you know, from which the uh, compounds are extracted. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We don't, we, we're trying to, uh, we're trying to get away from the term strain because it, it doesn't really apply correctly in this space. You know, I, I always say to somebody, if you go to the grocery store and they have four different kinds of tomatoes, they don't call them different strains of tomatoes. 
right? right. It's the same thing with this. You have, you know, and, and sativa and indica don't really work anymore. It's more, you know, narrow leaf and broad leaf in terms because most of it's hybrids. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and you've actually um, really documented from, because you also have the cultivation side of your business. Is that correct? We actually have, we're not doing the actual growing ourselves. Okay. However, we have uh, contract growers who grow just for us. Um, and they grow to our specifications. So it's a technicality that we're not growing. But uh, yeah, we have we have specific things. Unlike, for example, a dispensary that it's whomever walks through the door to sell them what they grew is what they have on the counter on the shelves that day. Um, for example, one of our very very dependable um, uh, uh, profiles is ACDC in the in the CBD in the cannabidiol um, uh, you know s- set of of cannabinoids, and so we always are assured that we have plenty of ACDC growing. Another of our daytime is Sherbert. We've had a lot of really good success with patients with Sherbert. So we always make sure we have enough Sherbert growing, that sort of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it's so interesting to me and um, people who are, are new to this and they're always wondering, you know, how, how did they come up with all of these names? <laughs> And it, uh-huh. it's clearly left over from, from a subculture, don't you think? 100%. And it, it absolutely makes me crazy. Um, what, you know, I go to, there's a website called seedfinder.eu that um, it's a really kind of a handy tool to look at the genetics of many of these um, quote unquote strains. And when I first started looking at them, they had like a thousand different cultivars. Now it's up well over 10,000 different ones. And if you actually do like a diagram of this, in fact, several have been done. Medicinal Genomics did one recently, along with Sonoma Lab Works, uh, based on what was at the Emerald Cup. And I know that uh, uh, Dale Gariger from Normal did one with Jeff Raber a few years back. I remember it seeing presented at Patients at a Time. And they look at it, they all kind of cluster around just a few, a few different ones. It's like they make a slight little variation in it and they call it something different or they don't make any variation and they call it something different. And then yeah. when you do a, a diagram of it, they're all clustered into like five to 10 different clusters and that's it. Right. So a lot of it's just ego. You know, some of the names of these things are ridiculous and they're barriers to entry in my opinion for uh, many, many people who are not comfortable, you know, going to their, their doctor and saying, yeah, I want green crack or I want, you know, I mean, some of the names of these things are, you know, you know, this is the radio, so I won't say the names of some of them, but uh, you know, it's just not, um, it's not realistic to expect these names to survive out in the medical marketplace, which is where we're headed. So we want to come up with a new nomenclature around it. I've been looking at some of the stuff from Eastern medicines where the suffix and prefix tell you about how the plant was processed and what it is and things like that. Um, I've looked at some of the adopted name um, standards for pharmaceuticals. And we really need to get a group of really bright people together to come up with a way to classify these. 
Yeah, and it seems that that there would be a numerical association as well, given um, if if you look at it like a, an organizational chart, you know, and where the where the main plant uh, started. In, mm-hmm. Historically, you have some, yeah, you have land race strains. I think that's what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I just didn't right. have the terminology for that's it. That's okay. That's right. Land race strains. In fact, if I had my druthers. This, you know, if anybody wants to, <laughs> everybody out there wants to give me what I really want, <laughs> I want an oil bar where I have spigots of every one of the land race strains. And from it, I could create all these other mixtures, right? Right. But, yeah, because one of the things that we're looking at in our data that we're collecting is uh, uh, country of origin and ethnicity. Because we're looking to see if there's an, uh, you know, because we already know that certain certain ethnic groups are uh, have a tendency to use more of specific profiles, but we don't know how much of that is just cultural and influence from their peers, and how much of it is because those are the ones that genetically would be best for them based upon the regions from which they come. Well, you and we know, want to find out. That would that would completely make sense. I mean, when you look at your genetic profile and the regions and the world, you know, from which your ancestry uh, lies, then there are certain foods even that respond better to certain body types because of their ethnic origin. So it, it yep. would make sense, especially since cannabis, you know, grew wild for, it still does grow wild, I'm sure, and many parts of the world and has been used for thousands of years as a healing tool. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. makes perfect sense. That's one of the reasons we're collecting it. So like I said, we're getting about 300 data points. And the reason we're doing that is because we don't know yet what we don't know. Yeah. So we're having to, uh, because the the data will speak for itself and I'll give you an example. I, I, um, Based upon our experience with our patients, it became very clear to me that there was uh, zero correlation between weight and dose, which is what the way that most standard pharmaceuticals are actually prescribed. They look at how much you weigh and they decide how much how much they're going to give you based upon that. Anyone who's ever looked at a Tylenol bottle, it says over 12, blah, and then under 12 is another dosing. We found, once we started looking at the data and actually charting it, that there was zero correlation, that I was correct. There was no correlation between it. We have, I have another theory that it's more directly uh, associated with the age of the patient. And so far, it's proving out to be true. When our N gets really large, though, we'll have to look again and see if it's accurate. Right. That's fascinating, actually. Oh, it's like it's like getting to play <laughs> in a sandbox all the time. Yeah, but you're right. It's like you don't know what you don't know until you learn more and find out that you know less than you thought. I mean, yeah, it's, it yeah. really is a fascinating science. And, and, you know, it's exciting to me to see the advances and to see the discoveries that are being made because... You know, I've said it before on this show that I really believe that um, opening up cannabis, uh, you know, it w- has so many incredible benefits. But, you know, I think it's going to transform the way we look at the field of medicine and 
it seems that there are a lot of doctors that are very well versed in cannabis who tend to agree because rather than you've got a natural substance that that can do much of what the synthetic substances can do and in a much safer way with no side effects. Right. You know, Donald Abrams, uh, Dr. Uh, Abrams, he has a slide that is very interesting and he talks about the, uh, the evolution, so to speak of medicine. And it talks about how we began with root medicines. And as we got more sophisticated, we moved towards these, you know, uh, the stamped pill, <laughs> yeah. so to speak. I mean, I'm 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 ad libbing his his slide, but then we're moving back now towards you know put away the the pill and take this route. So we're actually I think that we're we're figuring out that just because it's easier doesn't mean it's better. Right. And I think the doctors are catching on. I think doctors are frustrated. Um, in fact, I had a doctor that wrote to me a couple days ago. Uh, that said that he's frustrated because so many doctors who are seen as, as scientists and intellectually curious are no more, I think the, the term he used was no more than regional drug reps. Uh, and, and it was thinking about, you know, writing, writing prescriptions. That's what doctors do now. And if you go to the doctor and you don't need a prescription, what are you going to do? What are they going to do for you? Right. And most people, when they walk out of the doctor's office, if they don't have a prescription, they feel like nothing was done. Yeah, isn't that odd? It is, yeah. Yeah, so we've, we've definitely moved away from preventative medicine. And I mean, I, I hear horror stories, too, about um, the sort of profit sharing, if you will, or the commissions that are paid to some medical practitioners. And it just seems like such an injustice to patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had been a pain patient myself, um, which was one of the reasons that I started this to begin with. I had been on fentanyl patch and um, uh, methadone and a whole bunch of other horrible, horrible pharmaceuticals as a result of some pretty serious health issues. And I had gotten off all of them, but I was still in a lot of pain. And so I had gone to a, a, a pain uh, specialist. Um, to me, it seems like you shouldn't be a pain specialist. You should be a wellness specialist who gets rid of pain. But that's another thing, another story. <laughs> but um, but I went to this pain doctor and uh, I happened to because he was doing a procedure on me. No pharmaceuticals. I had, you know, no, no, none of that anymore. And but he was doing this other procedure, which was very good for getting rid of pain. Well, I showed up at his office on, you know, for want of a better word, drug day. And his waiting room was filled, filled with people standing as there were no more seats to pick up their prescription drugs. They were actually delivering and selling the the pharmaceuticals to the patients in the waiting room of his office. And I thought, how can you have any kind of check and balance when you have the same doctor who's prescribing also filling these it just doesn't seem like it should even be allowed. It seems like a conflict, a big conflict of interest in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so which is one of the reasons that I'm glad that doctors in California are not allowed to work specifically for dispensaries. I don't think they should. Um, our, our doctors, for example, will often help people with whatever medicine they have from wherever they got it. It doesn't have to be our medicines because they are agnostic to it. They're just about the dosing right. and the actual products is an outside uh, uh, question. 
interesting because I, I, I don't know that that's the way it is here. I'd have to look into that. I'm making a note. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting, uh, an interesting problem. I think with the advancement of the cannabis industry, we have a really unique opportunity to avoid some of the pitfalls and mistakes that happened over the last 80 years with the pharmaceutical industry, you know, where it's become a lot about money and policymaking has become about, you know, um, election money given by the very institution, you know, pharmaceutical industry that, that profits from keeping people on drugs. And it, it's such a shame, but with cannabis, because it is such an, uh, a holistic uh, substance, we have a really unique opportunity, and I really hope that it, it goes that way, where it stays sort of in the hands of the holistic um, community, as opposed to being manufactured into um, synthetics or you know, duplicated in that way. What's your thought on that? Uh, um, I agree with you with maybe one or two little caveats. I do believe that in order for this to be adopted by the general public, um, uh, there is going to have to be some sort of standardization. Yeah. Now, standardization does not mean synth- synthesizing, um, and it does not mean you know mass produced in you know in a in a way that that you know is a stamped pill. You know, this isn't going to be, it's never going to be Bayer aspirin. And I think that's one of the things that's the obstacles for adoption. I would like to see it treated more like a nutraceutical. Um, but I also want GMP quality labs. I also want standardized testing. Um, I also want very, very strict um, packaging guidelines and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I compare it more to if you have like a, um, uh, a microbrewery versus a, a, a large brewer, right? Not that I think this is anything like, you know, I, I, I'm strictly on the medical side of thing. I'm not on the adult use. That's a separate industry. But I use that analogy um, in the sense of, you know, there's, there's a lot of operators out there that are operating very, in, in very quaint space where they're growing some, they're making it in not sophisticated equipment, they are or they're not lab testing. Most of the time they're not. And they're making medicine for themselves and maybe their family and close friends. I don't have a problem with that. Um, uh, I don't know about the close friends. I have a little bit, you know, what does that mean? But I think that as far as um, people producing for others and uh, charging money or not um, having any kind of oversight, and, um, it, it just scares me because like, for example, I have a little boy that's very well known. Uh, I'll, I'll say his name. It's Chico Ryder. He's very well known. He's all over the internet. This, um, rhabdomyosarcoma came to, came to us. He was already using cannabis and it was helping to, sh- you know, in, with some of the side effects of the, uh, grueling chemotherapy he was going through um, but he was really having a lot of really horrible side effects from it that would not normally be associated with cannabis. So I took a look at the oil that he had been sold uh, or this mother had been sold for him. And I, t- and I took one, I smelled it and I was like, you got to get this lab tested, but you can't give this to him anymore. And it turned out it had been made with isopropyl alcohol. <gasps> well, 
you know, that's fine for cleaning your counters, you know, or your equipment. We use isopropyl in our lab all the time for cleaning the, it's a cleaning product basically. Um, but were they but using it for the extraction itself? They were, yeah, and it's very popular. You go on the internet and there's a lot of people that'll make an argument for using isopropyl and they say, oh, we purge it all. Well, you know what? You can't purge it all because maybe you get the actual alcohol out, but it leaves behind the poisonous residues that were put into the isopropyl to begin with to make it poison. And in this case, they hadn't even purged it. It was liquid. And when the, when the mother had contacted the producer, um, her, her reply to the mother was, well, leave it open to the air so that it can evaporate. What? I mean, come on. <laughs> this is a woman trying to treat her very, very seriously ill son. And that is the best you can do. I mean, the that's general, I mean, everyone, yeah, everyone that's involved in this industry right now, we're all early adopters. You know, every one of us is an early adopter at this point. Mm-hmm. But when this becomes the standard of care, you, the doctor has to have confidence that when they're going to send their patient to get cannabis medicine, that they're going to get something that actually qualifies as a medicine right. and not harm. Yeah. About two months ago, um, I interviewed a woman from the uh, Foundation of Unified uh, stand, Foundation of Cannabis Unified Standards Focus. And, Focus, yeah. Yeah, and they're, they're starting to work with the ASTM to develop some standards. And I, I really, um, I know that they've been working with a lot of different people from the industry, different aspects of the industry to, you know, try to develop some of these standards. But I hope that they're talking to people like you as well. Because, you know, I, I hear horror stories also about extraction methods. And, I mean, there really, there really are clean ways to do it that are just as effective and not much more expensive, you know, to produce the same medicine but without leaving behind all of these residues. And right. how do people know, um, you know, with the medicine that they buy at dispensaries in, in places where they're not really... Um, they're not in big cities where there's a huge network of people telling them the right and wrong way to do things. You know, it's very scary to me. Absolutely. And it's very scary to me too. Um, it, it really is. I mean, it's just, I, I'm horrified by some of the things that I see and, and hear. Uh, one, of the th- one of the things that people can do, and this is one of the things I, I always uh, stress, is insist that there's lab-tested medicines. If the dispensary is not carrying lab-tested medicines, go go to a different dispensary. Mm-hmm. And if if the products are, if there's only lab tests on four products, only select from those four products. Um, if in the only way that we're going to get uh, compliance um, where it's not mandatory is from the consumers refusing to buy them without the lab results. Right. Uh, um, every one of our medicines, the second it goes into our inventory. Um, the lab result associated with it is posted. And if we don't have a lab result, it doesn't go into the, into the inventory because and the only reason there's no lab result is we're waiting for it <laughs> because right. there's a, a gap because we believe in third-party independent uh, testing. Right. Um, so that's one of the things that people can do. 
the other thing is actually learn to read those lab results. If you need to ask for help, ask for them. But, you know, look at what the, uh, if there's any residual solvents. And if it's, if it's ethanol, that's going to be fine for the most part, as long as it's under a certain percentage and you're not looking to smoke it. But for ingestion, I mean, you look at something like soy sauce and soy sauce has 2% alcohol. A, a, a really well done ethanol extraction might have 0.2%. And that's okay because you start taking off all of it, you're going to also take the rest of the terpenes with it. And you want, so it's kind of a trade off. Right. But then you, if you look at like uh, some uh, uh, butane or hexane, any of the hydrocarbons, or even with CO2, you need to look and see. Um, what's there in the residuals. Now, the interesting thing about all the hydrocarbons and the CO2 is even if they use all these different methodologies, they still have to run them through an ethanol uh, wash at the end in order to extract the waxes and winterize it. So um, it's kind of uh, uh, silly that they don't just use the better method to begin with. Now, there are reasons, you know, pros and cons for each one of them. But if I've got a really seriously ill person, I'm going to want to know that that medicine was made in the highest quality way to treat them, not the quickest and most financially uh, beneficial just for the manufacturer. Right. Wow. Well, what is your overarching message to people who just haven't even... Um, thought about cannabis, people who might have been diagnosed with cancer, um, a bird's eye? Uh, I guess the, the number one message is there's hope. That's the first thing. There's hope. And unlike uh, standards of care where you have a particular chemotherapy type that's associated with a type of cancer or a group or class of targeted chemotherapies. With cannabis, you have so many different options. If the first thing that you use doesn't work, it just that means we could try something else. Um, and that's the beauty of it is because there are so many different cannabinoid and terpene uh, combinations, um, it's endless almost in how many different things we can try before we see something that works or doesn't work. Well, and also um, because and so many body types uh, respond differently to the different options that are out there. Absolutely. And that was like one of the things that I had said earlier is um, that if you have, you know, we always say if you've treated one cancer patient, you've treated one cancer patient patient. You know, instead of like you've treated one, you've treated them all, you've treated one because every cell line is going to be individual to a person. And so we have ideas of what we know pretty well, actually, what works as far as um, types of cannabinoids and terpenes that have been shown to be very beneficial and kill cells in vitro and in vivo. But until you try it on the individual, we don't know for sure. But if one thing doesn't work, we have a lot of other things to try. So be patient and work with your caregiver until you find what's the right combination for you. Yeah. And people who live in areas where they don't have access to people like you, where do you have an online forum or someplace where people could actually contact you? Um, do you offer that service at all? Yeah. Um, one of the things that we have is through our medical 
uh, Calispring Wellness. They do, our doctors and nurses do consultations with patients all over the world. Um, so it's done via Skype. So they're able to, you know, see them or talk to them. You know, they do their full patient intake and our doctors end up being part of their medical team in helping to guide them. So that's one thing that we can do. Another thing that we can do is um, we're more than happy to help to direct you to resources when appropriate. Um, we have people, we have a new patient intake person. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have uh, one of the individuals who works for us, uh, a young man named Justin Kander. He's written several books on cannabis and cancer. And he's just a wealth of information to help patients. And um, people can always reach out to us and we'll see to getting them to the right place. Right. Okay. I'll put information about you and your, um, I'll put it on our website uh, so that people can get in touch with you. So um, I'll write to you and get the exact uh, web address and all of that. So I think this has just been such an enlightening conversation. Um, I think, and also, you know, I know that we have to start wrapping it up here pretty soon. I'm looking at our producer, Wendy, and we have a a couple of minutes here. But um, I think that... The, the successes seem to far outweigh the um, negative stories when it comes to treating cancer with cannabis. Would you agree with that statement? I would. I would agree with it. I would also say that to be very cautious in how we look at that information, though, um, and because I, it's very important that people continue their standards of care. And I'll give you an example of a study that was done years ago with comparing THC on its own to TMZ to TMZ, to a chemotherapy drug that's used on GBMs, on glioblastoma multiform. Mm -hmm. And the uh, THC and TMZ both worked about the same, but when you combine the two, they worked about 50% better. And that is really what we see in most uh, treatments is that when you combine, you actually have better results. So I'm, I'm very, very cautious. You know, it's, it's, people ask me all the time, should I go ahead and do chemo or should I go ahead and do radiation? And that is a very personal question and a question between you and your, and your doctor and your family. But I'll tell you from what we see they work better together than they do apart in the ones that we've studied up to this point. And that's all we can go by. Right. So, um, so I, I don't, I don't um, support these forums and these, uh, you know, groups that say, Oh, chemotherapy is bad or radiation is bad. And also if you do do these standards of care, oftentimes what we find is that the, the cannabinoids, actually help the protect the healthy cells while the malignant cells are being destroyed so it will help them it'll kill the one help to kill the the cancerous cells but it will protect them from being ruined so that it's, it's not so difficult to complete your standard treatments right and then to bounce back afterwards exactly exactly yeah. mm-hmm. and not to mention the comfort level not to mention the comfort mm-hmm. yeah wow 
Well, this has been incredibly informative. Thank you so much, Mara. My pleasure. Yeah, and um, like I said, I'll put information about you um, up on the website and make sure that people know how to reach you. So with that, I think it's time to wrap it up and say goodbye. So once again, um, personally thanking um, my guest Mara Gordon for sharing her insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work she's doing, please do visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com and click broadcast to find today's episode. I will definitely post her bio information about Aunt Zelda's and all of the work that she's doing right there. I'd also like to thank our wonderful producer, Wendy West, and the team here at Star Worldwide Networks for making us shine on a regular basis. And thank you so much to Dr. Brian Donner for our Medical Marijuana Minute update. We'll hear from him again next week. I'd also like to express our sincere gratitude for our radio sponsors, HempMeds.com and HealthTerra. We could not be doing this without you, so thank you. Last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. Tune in again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, and until we meet again, stay safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. You're busy running around from work to kids to evening events. Healthcare shouldn't be adding to your daily running around. Simplify your healthcare with Helterra for only $15 per month per individual or $18 per month per family with up to nine kids. By the way, you can eliminate doctor office visits with 24/7 access to doctors via phone, video, or the mobile app. Not only do you get prescriptions filled over the phone, but save up to 85% on those prescriptions. This is a supplemental plan and not insurance. Healthcare made easy. Helterra.com.